A reading from the 24th Psalm. The earth is Yahweh's with its fullness, the world and those who live in it, because he has founded it on the seas and has established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of Yahweh and who may stand in his holy place? He who is innocent of hands and pure of heart, who does not lift up his soul to falseness and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and justice from the God of his salvation. Such is the sword of those who seek him, those who face your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and rise up, O ancient doorways, that the king of glory may enter. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in war. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, O ancient doorways, that the king of glory may enter. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. You know, as I look out at the congregation today, I can't help but think of an airplane. Like, you know, when you, you get on an airplane and there's an open aisle and you're like, ah, oh, space. And hopefully that's a metaphor for all of us today that, that we will have some space in, in our hearts and our lives to hear from God in his word today. Uh, one of my joys in leading this church is not only seeing the gospel impact lives and families, but seeing God raise up leaders for the next generation. And a couple years ago, a gentleman called me and he said, hey, I see what you're doing here. I'd love to be a part of it. And, and in fact, I feel called to uh, ministry. Would you walk with me in this? And so we did. And uh, this gentleman, he's a 14-year vet of the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, he is pursuing and just about to complete his master's in Old Testament from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, many of you don't know this, but he actually even composes music. And in fact, one of his songs was featured during the Olympics last year on a commercial. And he's an artist, he's a musician, he's a nerd, and he's a dear servant-hearted friend. And so as we look to hear from God's word this morning, I, I just want us to pause and, and celebrate not only God's word to us, but God's word through this friend who God is raising up to impact the next generation uh, for Christ and his kingdom. And so will you give a warm Daniel Island welcome, Daniel Island Fellowship welcome to our dear friend Kenneth Padgett as he brings God's word to us today. Thank you. Uh, I'm just looking at that. Uh, that's the title of my sermon. It's not Kenneth Paget, The Mountain of God. <laughs> um, please pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to gather together here. Um, we know that where two or more are gathered, you are here in our midst. And we just want to celebrate that this morning because you have been so good to us. And Father, I pray that you would show us more of who you are in your word this morning. And, uh, yeah, we pray that we are satisfied in you and you are thus glorified in us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, technology. You got to love it. Um, while I'm waiting for technology to happen, I'm going to tell you, okay, no, wait a minute. We might not have to wait that long. Okay. I think that's right. All right. So um, some of you guys are here last time that I spoke. Maybe not. It was like over a year ago. But if you were... 
Paul said, hey, would you mind sharing something and pick a passage and let me know and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so I, I can't p pick a passage. I'm just going to do the whole Bible. And so Paul's like, I, oh, okay, well, let's, let's, let's try it. And so I, do, I come up here, and we actually did it. We talked about the storyline of the whole Bible. And we talked about, if you remember the very beginning, heaven and earth being joined together. We call that Eden. And page three of this super long story, it all falls apart. And then we see, we saw through the rest of the story, God initiating, connecting heaven and earth, trying to connect heaven and earth. And there's points, there's touch points in the story in the Old Testament. And then we finally get to Jesus where he, he connects it. So the God-man connects heaven and earth. And in him, we can enjoy the presence of God. And we saw that then, therefore, he commissioned us to go and to take his kingdom, put that mantle on and go out into the world and serve the poor and serve the needy and to share the gospel, the good news about this king who's come, who's connected heaven and earth and allowed us back into the presence of God. And then we saw at the very end, in, in the end of Revelation, we saw this heaven and earth coming back together finally and fully, physically. And that was the storyline of the Bible. And it was awesome. And this time around, Paul's like, hey, is there any way maybe we can do a smaller chunk? <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So I like thinking about things like on, on, on like this high up above level. And I, I, I like thinking like, you know, what is the purpose of life? And what's the storyline of the Bible? So I thought, okay, well, let's answer the greatest question that any human has ever asked in human history. And Paul's like, uh, all right, I, that's smaller, I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> And so we're going to do that today, and today is going to be more like a teaching than a preaching. Uh, so you, we'll, it'll be a little bit different, but uh, we're going to fully like nerd out on the Bible for a little bit, and it's going to be super fun. Before we get into that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself uh, and my own story. And I want to take you back to 2002 in the Persian Gulf. And this picture right here, this is the ship that I was on um, and this is, the, this is the Persian Gulf. And I don't know if you can see in the back, um, this, particular, this was not a vacation. Um, I'm, I'm, this was a business trip. And um, 2002, it was very business-y uh, at that time in that area. And um, I'm, I grew up in the South and I grew up in the low country, one of the few, and uh, Yay, I'm born and raised. And so I, I grew up in a Christian culture, Christian context. And I noticed that after high school, teenagers hear me here, after high school, um, I noticed that when the Navy kind of plucked me up and took me out of my context, uh, my faith stayed there too. I, didn't, I was living kind of vicariously through the culture and the context, my faith. And so when I got out of that context and God put me on this big steel thing and we traveled all over the world with 5,500 sailors, um, I didn't have really any faith. I didn't deny Jesus. I just didn't live like he was the king, like, like that I should follow him. And so I, I knew just enough. Have you ever felt this way where you know just enough about Jesus that you feel a little bit guilty? But you don't know enough about Jesus to get the real comfort that he offers. So I, this is where I was at this time in my life. And actually, this picture is a great analogy of where I was physically, but it's also like where I was spiritually. I think in this picture, it's probably like, it's probably like 280 degrees in that picture, if you can just put yourself there. Uh, I'm just kidding. That was the real feel 
the, uh, the actual temperature couldn't have been over 212. But, um, but you get the picture, you get the idea. Spiritually, I'm, I'm, I was wandering, I was drifting, it was barren, it was a wasteland, there was nowhere I was going spiritually. Um, and I just felt really uh, distant. I felt like there was a separation between me and God, a distance between us. And one night, uh, I'm brushing my teeth and I'm not feeling very great about life and I'm looking in the mirror and it's in the bathroom. And on the other side of the mirror, this is like the, the room is bifurcated that way. And uh, on the other side of the mirror, there's another guy sharing the gospel with another guy. And I'm just listening. And I'm like, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, the other guy's like, that, that he's talking to is like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. And I'm just like floored. Like, oh my gosh. Like, I, I don't, I never understood Jesus. I never got it, you know. And I'm like totally floored. And I'm like, just like brushing my teeth, you know, you can imagine. And, and, and I'm looking at my 24-year-old face in a mirror, like listening to the gospel. And it's a little bit different than the face you see here. And so I, I, I go and I walk by and I see them and I like walk to my rack. My rack, my bed, I, I always say my rack and I always think people are thinking I'm saying I rack because I'm right there. But I walk to my bed and I open it up and everything I have in the world is right here in about this deep of a drawer, and there's a Bible in there that I bought in an airport because Christians are supposed to have Bibles, and that's what I thought I was, and so I bought this. I didn't even open it to check and see if it actually was a Bible, I don't think. I mean, that's how unused it was, and so I, I opened the Bible, and I felt like in that moment, you know, I opened it up, and I got to the, you know, so you start, like, let's start at the beginning, Old Testament. What is this? What is happening here? So like, no, 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 no. Get to Jesus. Okay, I know the Gospels, Matthew, Matthew 1, genealogy. You're like, ugh, no, not genealogy. Like, and then, oh, the Christmas story. Here we go. You know, I'm starting to get familiar. And I started reading about Jesus over and over every night, night after night after night after night. And I felt like God, there was this huge distance between us. And I felt like God kind of reached across that distance. The Father reached across that distance, and he grabbed my hand. My hand was not out. He just kind of took it. And he grabbed the hand and led me to his son. And over time, his son filled me with his spirit. And I've been like totally different ever since. There was a chasm. Have you ever felt that way where you felt a distance between yourself and God? This morning, we're going to talk about how God reaches through that distance to take us by the hand and lead us to himself. That's what today's message is all about. So anyway, I go from there. I get out of the Navy. I'm like, oh, I want to be radical, crazy, cool. I want to be a missionary. And so I go to Israel. And then I realize I don't know anything about the Bible. And so I come back and I go to school. And uh, that's where I met my wife. And we got married. And then we decided, okay, we need to go to seminary. And this is like 2008 time frame. And I sit down and my first class is Old Testament. I'm like, okay, here we go, Old Testament. Well, I've been to Israel, so that means I should know something. But I, I didn't. I didn't know anything. And so he says, um, my, my teacher, first day, he says, hey, the New Testament is like a jewelry store. It's, you walk in, climate controlled, lighting's perfect. All the jewels are right there just for you to stare at, just for you to look at. It's, it's easy pickings. You walk in the New Testament, oh, that's good. Oh, Jesus, good one. And it's all great. And the Old Testament is like a mine. Okay, you have to actually like do some work here. You know, it's not climate controlled, it's hot, and you gotta go down there and you have to have a pickaxe and put your headlamp on, and you gotta be willing to get dirty and get sweaty, and you gotta, you gotta go for it. That's, 
that's what I would like to do here this morning, if you guys would, would join me in that. Um, if we're willing to do a little bit of work, some things that are going to seem foreign to us, some things that are going to seem strange to us when we open up our Old Testaments, actually are going to be some of the most beautiful things and easiest things to understand. So traditionally here at Daniel and Fellowship, we open with an opening question to kind of get our minds moving in the direction of, of where we're going so we can all get on the same page. So here's my opening question. We already heard it this morning um, with Mason's reading. Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? So my proposal this morning is this is the most important question that anyone has ever asked in the history of humanity. And getting this answer is going to change our lives forever. Has anybody ever asked this question before? I, I hadn't. <laughs> you know, like, what, okay, so, like, what in the world is the mountain of Yahweh? That's probably a good place to start. If you, if you, if I handed you um, a Russian manual on how to build a space station, and you, you're like, oh, I can't do this. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, let me get a perfectly good English translation. You know, here you go. You know, you would probably, most of us probably be like, this is not helpful. I don't know how to build a space station. Having the English instruction, the English translation of the Russian instructions is not very helpful. But what if I handed you ancient scripture? What if I handed you the Old Testament and it was written in an old, ancient, dead, ancient Near Eastern uh, Hebrew language that nobody uses anymore? And you're like, no, okay, I'll be, okay, here's a perfectly good English translation, which all of us have access to. And I hand it to you. It's kind of the same deal. There's conceptual issues there's translation that needs to happen on the conceptual level. Just having English, who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh, okay, Yahweh's Hebrew. Um, in, in your Bibles, Yahweh's easy to remember this. In your Bibles, if you open it anywhere in the Old Testament, I bet, open that page, you see Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D. That's the name, the divine name. It's the name of God. And it's Yahweh. And the reason I don't have any vowels in there is because they don't have any vowels. They just have consonants. And so you kind of got to figure out how they said what they said. And, and a lot of that's been preserved and there's a whole system. I won't get into that. But um, just trust me, YHWH is Yahweh. It's the divine name. I, since studying the Old Testament, I've gotten into the habit of using that, that personal name of God. And it's his name, not just, not just the God of the Old Testament named Yahweh. The God of the New Testament is named Yahweh. Actually, you may have heard Jesus, his real name, what they called him was Yeshua which is Yah is Yahweh, Shua is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. That's what you, you, you go up to Jesus, hey, what's up, Yahweh is salvation? You know, that's his name. So this Yahweh thing is like all the way through, it's the name of God, it's awesome. So if we take our pickaxe and you come with me, we're gonna go into the mine a little bit and we're gonna like chip away and see if we can see um, any, any cool stuff in here um, with the mountain of Yahweh. So here's the deal. It's an ancient Near Eastern expression, it's very simple, about the dwelling place of the gods, the mountain of the gods, mountain of God. Uh, you probably have heard about this. Um, this is where the gods would dwell, were on mountains in the ancient Near East. Um, and think about it, it's, it's a highly exalted place, it's supreme vantage point, it's the control center of the cosmos, it's where God reigns, the gods reign and rule. You're utterly unapproachable, you can't climb it. Um, and this is how they conceived of where God was. You've probably heard about this. Uh, Disney got in on it um, and made a movie about it. And you've probably heard of these Greek 
mythology in Olympus, Mount Olympus, and this is where all the gods were, Zeus, if you ever heard of that guy. And this is it. That's it right there in the cartoon. So you've seen it probably. You, you've heard of this kind of, this idea. And if you even look at, you know, the actual Mount Olympus, you can kind of get the idea. If we take our shoes off and we put the sandals on and the ancient Near Eastern people, the Mediterranean people, thousands of years ago, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, you, yeah, that's like a pretty exalted and holy situation going on up there. We can't get up there. That's crazy. That's must, that must be where the gods are reigning and ruling over the world. And what you'll find is when you go in the Old Testament, and this kind of makes it seem foreign to us, is you'll go in the Old Testament and you'll read something like, who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? And you're like, okay, that's English, but I don't know what it means. So you're going to find these ancient Near Eastern concepts, just they're saying it like there's nothing wrong, like you should get it because it's an ancient Near Eastern book. And so you have to do a little bit of digging, a little bit of chipping away, and you start to understand, hey, the mountain of Yahweh is the dwelling place of God. That's what it means. It's where God dwells. It's where he is. It's where he reigns. It's where he rules. And so what I want to, uh, we're going to go through the story here a little bit uh, this morning to kind of get a sense of this, what God is doing with the mountain of Yahweh. So, Here's a question. Have you, ever, have you ever thought of Eden as a mountaintop garden? In your mind, like when you conceptualize Eden, you're kind of like, it's just a garden. It's like an oasis in the desert, I guess. You know? That's how I thought about it. Um, but there's like actual like some, some features about this, um, about this garden that we're going to see uh, is show us, shows us that it's the mountain of Yahweh itself. Um, it's, a, it's the mountain that God creates in Genesis 1. It's the place that God creates in Genesis 1 through 3. And we can see the four rivers flowing out of it. You know, rivers flow out of mountains, down mountains. Um, it's the dwelling place of Yahweh. That's the biggest key right there. This is how the ancient people thought of the dwelling of God was on a mountaintop. And he's there in Genesis 3 in the cool of the day. He's walking. That's, this is where he hangs out. And he's, this is not just where he hangs out. This is where his reign and rule is. And he creates people. He creates humanity to share in this experience, in love and uh, in just a, a wholly different experience than maybe than what we live and feel now sometimes. But this is how he created humanity. This is it. This is where, this is what we are supposed, this is where we're supposed to be. In the presence of God, given his dominion, given the mantle and told to go out and spread his kingdom, fill and multiply the earth with his glory. If you read Genesis 1, 2, 3, you're, you're going to start to see like, oh yeah, okay, this is, they're in the presence of God here. On page 3, like we talked about earlier, on page 3 of the super long story, like it all goes bad. You probably heard the story of the serpent, the fruit, Adam and Eve partaking. They want to be like God. The serpent says, oh, you can be like God. And that doesn't send them up a mountain. That sends them down. They're exiled out of this lush, this lush garden on this mountaintop in the presence of God, how they were supposed to be living and existing. This is, they were fully human in that. And they lost a little bit of their humanity when they were exiled out of the presence of God. And you're going to see the trajectory. If you follow the trajectory of these opening chapters, you'll see that the trajectory of humans and humanity is downward and eastward, and that's going to come into play earlier. In fact, if you wanted to like picture Genesis 4 through 11 in a picture, this is kind of it. 
Um, we start, humanity starts in the presence, this is how we're supposed to dwell, in the presence of God on his mountain, on his holy mountain, and we're exiled out because we're rebels, and we go down, and if you follow this, you'll see like, oh, Cain murdered his brother. Oh, then there's, a, then there's another guy who says, oh, I kill more than Cain. And then the whole world is filled with evil, and there's a flood that wipes it all out. And then finally, all those people, they, they, and they keep going eastward. And that's, the, that's, that's how they're always sent eastward. And finally, they get to the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard of that story in Genesis 11. And they decide, you know what? We're going to build our own mountain. We're going to build the mountain of man. And this is where they're going to make their name great. They're going to put themselves in the heavens. And Yahweh says, no, that's not happening. And he scatters everybody out. And so he confuses their languages. Maybe you've heard this story. He confuses their languages and sends them all over the world. And this is very important because Babel is Genesis 11. Uh, we, it doesn't stay that way. It's not like this, like, oh, this is just a bad story. This is terrible. Um, we, we, we should, we should, it'd be terrible if the story ended right here. Um, but you start, to con you start to think about the question again. Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Now you're starting to think of like, okay, so ancient people understood themselves as beginning on the mountain of Yahweh and descending down into just rebellion and hatred and murder and strife and wars and uh, self-exaltation. And the question is obvious if you look at the picture. I mean, like, where do you want to be in this picture, you know? Well, you want to be up here. You want to be in Eden. You want to be where God is. You want to be where the most loving creature in all, the creature, the most loving person in all of the cosmos and the universe is. You want to be with him, and he wants you to be with him. But we keep rebelling and rebelling and rebelling and rebelling. Genesis 11, Babel. Genesis 12, Abram, Abraham. This is where he says, hey, all these people that I scattered all over the world, now I'm going to, I'm, through you, through your seed, Abraham, I'm going to bring all the nations back in and up for blessing. I got a plan, and I'm initiating it, not you. And so his plan from Genesis 12 all the way through the Old Testament, New Testament, is to bring us back in for blessing, to bless us, to love us, uh, for us to experience him, for us to be fully human and to flourish. Um, there's, there's one mountain of Yahweh. It's not like there's a bunch of mountains of Yahweh's. It's, the mountain of Yahweh, when you read the Old Testament, is, it's just where Yahweh dwells, where God dwells. It's the dwelling place of God. So if you take this and you go, maybe you've heard the story, so you have Abraham, and, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, and they end up in, maybe you've heard Joseph, they sell him into slavery, and all they, they actually have to come back over into Egypt and to save themselves, but then it's been 400 years they've been there, and Pharaoh's freaked out by how big they are, how many there are, and he enslaves them. Okay, you, you've heard this story. Um, DreamWorks got in on it and, you know, made, made a movie about it. It's actually a really good movie. I, I actually like this a lot. But um, you, this is the story. This is like the story of the Old Testament is the Exodus. And so Yahweh and Pharaoh have this showdown. Pharaoh loses and he takes his people out. Sea spreads open. The people go through and they're, they're through Pharaoh's. Um, done and dusted, and they're out and they're in like the wilderness, and they're in this desert wilderness, and they're walking around. There's like 600,000 of these people, and they're just walking around, and they run into a mountain, and 
the mountain is called Mount Sinai. And there is the presence of Yahweh on the top of the mountain. But you can't ascend the mountain of Yahweh. This is just like actually a physical mountain in the desert somewhere that his presence came down on. But it's still the mountain of Yahweh. It's his presence. And they're freaked out. They're like, oh, no, that's crazy. Um, and he calls Moses. He says, okay, Moses, you can come up. And you'll notice that um, it's the dwelling place of Yahweh. He makes a covenant with Israel. And he gives them what he does. And this is the part where I mean, we get bogged down. If you try to read this stuff, it's like, what? Um, I don't know how much I can take of this. Because it's like instructions on how to build a tent, a really elaborate tent. And you're, this part, you're like, oh, okay, let's go to skip ahead to the Psalms or Proverbs or something. Um, I know that's how I was in the past. It's kind of like, I don't know how much of this I can take. And so, because it's these really detailed instructions. And the Sinai is interesting. If you actually pay attention to the narrative, what's happening, Moses is allowed to go all the way to the top, right, and get the Ten Commandments. You know, we've seen that. And the elders are allowed to go halfway up the elders of the people, the people are not allowed to go up, okay? So there's this kind of mediator thing happening here, um, ascending the mountain of Yahweh. And he gives them Ten Commandments, he gives them the covenant, and he says, hey, here's the deal, we're going to the promised land, and I'm going to go with you. And so what he does is he like, if you think of like Mount Sinai like this, and, it's, and here's Moses, and here's the people, or here's the elders, and here's the people, um, and what he does is he just turns it on its side, and that's how you should think of the tabernacle. Okay, this is the tent. This is the instructions. Okay, the tabernacle is the mountain of Yahweh. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But it, it has this same three-tiered uh, layout. And, and also what's very interesting is that the entrance is on the east. So when you enter the tabernacle, you're heading westward. If you remember before, we talked about the trajectory of humans away from God was eastward all through that Genesis 4 through 11. What we have here is we have a, a, uh, a reversal. So you have this tabernacle. The temple, just a way to conceive of that, is it's a permanent tabernacle. It's just made out of stone. So when they finally get to the promised land, they go to Mount Zion, Mount Zion, and they they build the temple where it's permanently there. That's where the presence of God is. Um, the tabernacle, if you just want to see kind of what it looked like, that's what it looked like. Um, the, and, and there, the smoke, the pillar of smoke and fire is the presence of Yahweh. And so the outer court, where the people are right there, like inside the tent, but they're in the outer court. And then you have that, um, this, this big like, tent inside the tent. Halfway through there, you're in the holy place. And all of the imagery in this place is the garden. It's trees, it's the cherubim, um, it's the menorah. It's all garden imagery when you walk in there. And then there's a veil. And on the other side of the veil, they put the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the cherubim are. And the cherubim are only in two places in the whole Bible. If you ever, I don't know if you ever noticed that. The cherubim are only in Eden, and they're only in the temple and the tabernacle. That's interesting to think about. Because they're guarding the way they're the ones saying, no, you can't come in once they're exiled out. And they're there in the Holy of Holies is what this place is called, where the presence of God dwells. So let's go back and now look at our question that we have a little bit of background uh, to what the psalmist, who was David, is writing. So now he says, 
Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who can stand in his holy place? He who is innocent of hands, pure of heart, who does not lift up his soul to falseness and does not swear deceitfully. Well, that's really cool. The next verse answers the question. That, there's the answer right there. Um, but the only problem is, is so if the mountain of Yahweh is his presence, and that's where I want to be because that's where I want to flourish as a human being in the presence of this loving God, and uh, how do I stand in his holy place? Oh, I should be innocent of hands, pure of heart, and not lift up my soul to falseness and not swear deceitfully. So really cool, we get, a, we get an answer. The problem is that's not me. I'm not that guy. And I'm willing to bet everything I have that you're not that guy or gal. Is that you? No? Everybody say no. Paul? Nope. All right, so here we are. We have the answer, and it's like, oh, that's unhelpful. That's not me. Um, and this is where the story. So we got to, if you remember, we got to Exodus and we got to Mount Sinai and we got the tabernacle and God's promising his presence with these people, right? This is where we get to Leviticus. This is where we, most of us, I mean, I know, it's just like kind of check out, is we get to the really strange stuff. Um, Leviticus. There's a lot of blood in Leviticus, especially 1 through 16. Just blood, 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 blood. I think sometimes, I know that I used to, maybe you do too, I look at this and I think of death. But that's not the way the ancient Near Eastern people thought of it. The ancient Near Eastern people thought of blood represented life. Okay? So my life is not worthy. I am not a pure, I'm not a pure person. So Yahweh makes this way, he initiates this way for, for people, for humans to come into his presence and it's through sacrifice. And he's like, you, you can't, you don't have, your life is not pure. Bring me a pure sacrifice, a lamb, a spotless lamb. If it's not a spotless lamb, it doesn't work. It's no good. You don't want to do that. And so what they do is they bring a spotless lamb. And this is really gross, is the priest, they cut the lamb, the blood flows out, and that's the life. And it's a substitutionary life. Okay, the person bringing the lamb is saying, my life is now this life. Okay, this life is now my life. And so what he does is he cuts the blood, he cuts the animal, the blood comes out, he puts his hands in it, right? Fills up, he fills up a bowl, he takes that bowl, and he goes into the holy place, and there's all this like imagery of the garden, and he takes the blood with his hands, and he like splatters it on the wall, and like on this like carpet walls that they have and he splatters it all over and what he's doing is he's taking the life of this innocent animal that is now my life and he's physically spreading it all over Eden he's spreading it all over the presence of God connecting me and God this is how this is the only way and this is super weird and strange like we read this and we're like what the heck is going on and, you know, it's just super strange and so foreign to us that when we're in the Old Testament, we're like, ah, oh, man, I don't know. I, I don't know. This is so weird. The reason this is weird is because we don't do this anymore. And we haven't done it for 2,000 years. This, and so we're so far removed. This is so weird. But the Bible, that's where it was written. And, the, and what happened 
2,000 years ago um, is this guy Jesus comes on the scene. And John the Baptist sees him. Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not, this is not like just Jews and temples. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we're getting to that all families coming in for blessing. This is the Lamb that God is putting forward for all the nations of the earth to be able to come back into His presence. Sometimes we, we, we modernize the death of Jesus. Or we try to reckon with it with our own way of thinking. We have to go back to the setting in which it, in which it happens. And we look at this Old Testament setting and, and, and we see the Lamb of God shedding His blood for His people. Yahweh saves, by the way, is His name. Because He will save His people from their sin. And it's not a coincidence that at His death, the moment where He says, it is finished, that we read, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's an interesting detail to add, you know? It's not like, uh, I guess like God's like abandoning the Jews or something. No, 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 no. No, no. What he's doing, like what he did to me in 2002, is he reached across that chasm from, from west to east. And here I am way over here feeling like, what in the world's going on? I have nothing. I can bring nothing to the table. And through his spotless lamb, he grabbed my hand and he, he, he walked me in. And if you want to go like this, he walked me through the east gate, headed westward. And he walked me into the holy place. And he walked me to the holy of holies. And he tore the veil open. And he said, this is where I want you to be a human. This is where I want you to live because I love you. And I, it, we realize, have you ever thought, like, hey, I'm made for more than what the wilderness, this world, has to offer? You ever thought, like, I don't know if I'm, like, fully flourishing here. This is what Jesus is offering. This is what God has initiated in the blood sacrifice of Jesus, which we don't, honestly, we don't like to talk about it that much. But it's so beautiful. If you're willing to go back to the Old Testament, sometimes like when you're reading, and you're like, you see something, you're like, what the heck is this? Just try to do a little bit of work. Pick, get that pickaxe and put it on the wall, and you might uncover this beautiful jewel that you can treasure forever. And what happens is the answer to the most important question that has ever been asked by any human being, how in the world do we get back in the presence of God? How do we ascend his, mount, ascend his mountain? You have to be holy. You have to be pure. Well, it's those who are in Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, who shed his blood on our behalf. It's those who are in him. They will ascend the mountain of Yahweh. So that is uh, an ancient Near Eastern concept that you explore and you find out, you do a little bit of work and you see the beauty of the gospel is it started like right here. And what is happening? So as we close now, um, I want you to consider maybe you have yet to ascend the mountain. And maybe you're experiencing life in a way that isn't fulfilling. There's not hope. There, you're not flourishing. 
It's because there's a chasm between you and God. And he is reaching across in the gospel of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in his death. He's reaching across and taking your hand. And so the invitation this morning is to accept that hand. You're not bringing anything to the table. You may, be, have, you may have been sacrificing to a false god. You may have bringing, been bringing a spotted uh, sacrifice to the right God. It's not going to work. It's only through Jesus. That's why we sing that. It's only through Jesus that we get to ascend this mountain and dwell and flourish in his presence. So that's the challenge for some of us today that need to do that. And for others, the, the challenge is, you know, Paul the Apostle tells us, hey, read the Bible. Read Scripture. It's profitable. But just think about it. Paul didn't even have a New Testament. When he's saying read Scripture, he's, he's referring to the Old Testament. And my point here is like, just like Paul said last week, you know, where he wants us to engage with our minds on this mountain transfiguration, this is, sometimes this is kind of what it looks like when, when you go in and you dig a little bit deeper. And so that's the message. So um, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Father, thank you so much that you initiated a way for us to come back into your presence. This is the ultimate expression of love and mercy and grace. Father, we just want to say thank you. And I pray that for those of us who have yet to ascend that mountain, for those of us who have yet to accept the life that's revealed in the shed blood of the spotless lamb of Jesus, Father, I pray that your spirit would work and I pray that we would come, even this morning, into your presence. We pray this for Jesus' name's sake, that he would be glorified and we would be satisfied in him. Amen.